Podcast. I got Matt Norland here with me, and before we get into it, I just wanted to say thanks to everybody for the kind comments about last week's podcast that was um, essentially a reaction to the college basketball scandal that broke last Tuesday morning. The uh, responses were overwhelming. I think Norland and I tried to show our appreciation on social media as much as we can, could, but if we didn't, uh, let the record show that, that we, uh, we noticed, uh, we read them. And uh, we did sincerely appreciate it. And to all of you who uh, like that and and uh, and do listen regularly, um, please remember to subscribe over on iTunes and 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 rate it however you feel like rating it, uh, because that stuff matters in ways that uh, perhaps I've mostly ignored in the past, but maybe shouldn't going forward. So thank you for all that. And let's talk about the college basketball scandal a little bit more. Obviously, now it's been a week. Uh, since uh, the sport was rocked by um, the U.S. Attorney's Office in uh, in New York, uh, since they detailed uh, the results of an FBI investigation that led to the arrest of four college basketball assistants, two shoe company executives, um, an agent, uh, and a few other people. And though we know a lot more about it today than we did last time we spoke about it, I still don't think um, we're anywhere close to the end of this. As I believe I said on last week's podcast, but not entirely sure because I have talked about this so many times over the past week, whether it's on television or radio on other people's podcasts, um, it can start to all blur and you don't really know what you've said and where you've said it. Um, But those two shoe company executives who are now facing federal prison, um, are going to flip at some point. Um, They're not career criminals. Uh, They're not men who live by some code of of snitches get stitches. They're going to talk. And when they talk, they're going to have stories to tell. And when they tell stories, I will be absolutely shocked if it doesn't bring other college basketball programs and other college basketball coaches into this ongoing and growing scandal. Are you on board with me there, Norlander? This is... We know, I think at this point, this scandal has touched eight different college basketball programs. I don't know when that number will grow, but I do think that number is going to grow. I think it will grow as well. Um, I, too, have lost a little bit of track of what we discussed on last week's pod versus in other spots here. So we'll try as best not to uh, repeat too much of what we hit on and give you guys some fresh uh, perspective opinion uh, with a week having passed, essentially, and uh, us having obviously talked to many, many people on background and off the record. Um, Big picture, I've actually had, what's been interesting, GP, is there have been a lot of coaches that have reached out uh, or that I've reached out to them and they've gotten back to me. Uh, A lot of coaches want to know who is going to get charged next. A lot of coaches are in the dark when it comes to this. They are uh, intrigued, perhaps some a little bit worried, perhaps some just grossly curious. That is the big unknown. So the two elements in play right now, in my opinion, are, yes, Gatto and Merle Code, the Adidas employees that have been charged. Um, When they flip, uh, if they flip, who are they going to basically give up? And when when will that happen? Okay, because they now obviously have defense teams. 
There's a whole process going on right now. They are, by the way, I believe, I don't know if all 10 are, are due to be arraigned, but um, many are due to be arraigned in Manhattan on Thursday. Arraignment will basically be, what do you, what do you plead? Uh, guilty, not guilty, et cetera, et cetera. And from there, the process begins, and, be, and we got many miles to go. So what are they going to give up? Uh, what more will we know? Then there's the element of the FBI's investigation as it stands right now and just how much we don't know. We only know what the FBI wanted to let us know publicly. And they raided the Nike Elite Youth Basketball League, I guess, in essence, headquarters, for lack of a better term. Now, the raid would have provided digital information on hard drives that they had uh, a warrant to take and anything else on hard files. Now, I would not be inclined to believe that if Nike was doing anything untoward, it would be on the book, so to speak. But that does not mean that there will not be information uh, gathered by the FBI that will not help corroborate other possible leads that they're dealing with. So the other big unknown right now is if that Nike raid uh, as a investigation all to itself or if it helps corroborate what code might give up, given that he was fired from Nike and would frankly, uh, have plenty of interest in giving up, uh, perhaps, you know, bodies that are buried, so to speak, what they're going to get there and when the FBI chooses to release it, because it could have something damning in a matter of days, but for the benefit of its investigation, for reasons we won't know, could choose not to release that information until December, January, February, March, who knows, okay? So those are the big unknowns in play. The one other thing I'll throw in here before I toss it back to you, and at some point I do want to get to perhaps just some broader contacts about maybe what we've talked about with coaches over the past week. Um, I, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that as we record this on Tuesday afternoon, we are now a week removed from the story breaking. If there are other coaches that are clearly know that, they're, that they've done wrong here, um, they haven't given themselves up yet, their programs, if they conducted internal reviews – we're not able to uncover anything because there was nothing so glaring. Like, for example, Alabama, in essence, took the resignation of uh, essentially a director of basketball operations who seemed to be, at the very least, connected uh, with some of the players, that have, with some of the people that have been charged in this case. Uh, so Alabama uncovered something, but also, by the way, said there was no NCAA violation. I don't really get how that happened. Well, perhaps that's just the thing. Well, let, beside, but, let me stop you there because I, okay. I, I think I do know how that happened. Because what that administrative assistant is accused of doing is accepting money from, I believe it was a financial advisor. Right. To, I want to say, and I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say it was um, sued. I think, but it might be Michelle. Okay, guy who, okay, uh, okay. It was a guy. It was a guy. And essentially, he either actually had influence over a player who is believed to be Colin Sexton, or he convinced somebody that he had influence over a player who is believed to be Colin Sexton. But either way, he accepted money to essentially set up a meeting to uh, say, hey, listen, I can get you in the room with the dad. You know? mm-hmm. And okay, so, so he accepts that, that cash for that. So from Alabama's perspective, yo, you can't. We can't have somebody on staff accepting money from an outside influence to put them in a room with one of our student athletes. That's not okay. You're fired. But I talked to a lot of different coaches about this, and the one thing they point out is, okay, yeah, that's wrong. I wouldn't do it. But is it an NCAA violation? 
Like, obviously, you take that money and you give it to the dad. You have uh, provided an impermissible benefit. That's a violation. You take that money, you give it to the kid. You have provided an impermissible benefit. That's an NCAA violation. But if you take the money and keep it, is it is it actually an NCAA violation? So I was just as baffled as you and everybody else when Alabama announced last week that they had accepted the resignation or terminated this this individual, uh, although they conducted an investigation and found no uh, SEC violations or NCAA violations. I was like, what? Then why are you firing? But, mm-hmm. it, but, it, but it might actually be that him simply accepting money uh, on the promise of I'll get you in the room with a family member of our star point guard, I don't think technically that's against NCAA rules. It's obviously not something you want your um, your uh, a member of your uh, coaching staff doing, but is it actually a violation of NCAA rules? That seems unclear. And so I think Alabama was, was technically telling the truth there, even if it, it was confusing when it was first relayed. And then, yeah, but, you know, the issue of, uh, Sexton's eligibility and a number of players at all the programs that have been affected. That's something that I don't know if we need to get too deep into on this podcast because those questions are going to be answered uh, on behalf of, frankly, the universities that are responsible for determining this stuff over the next four to five weeks. It's going to be on those schools to determine if those players can be eligible or not. And then if they think that they are, they could inherently be taking a gamble. We'll see. But the, the last point I was trying to make was um in absence of coaches owning up to this calling that tip line or turning themselves in however they want to that hasn't happened right uh the schools doing internal reviews finding anything and uh, in essence you know enforcing a, a resignation if not a firing that hasn't happened yet i think that we are about hitting the expiration date on that now we could get something maybe later this week for all we know, I mean, let's remember, as we record this podcast, the only person that has been fired as of us recording this is Lamont Evans at Oklahoma State. Chuck Burson is still technically employed by Auburn. Tony Bland is still technically employed by USC. And Book Richardson is still technically employed at Arizona, not to mention the head coaches of those guys still, uh, you know, employed to the fullest as far as we know at this point. So if there are other coaches, assistants, whomever, throughout college basketball that could possibly be on the verge of this. I feel like that's due to come shortly. And if it doesn't, then it's a matter of whoever gets charged next will probably be exposed by Gatto or Code or in corroboration with the FBI's subpoena issued to Nike EYBL and its own investigation. Um, it, it is true that that those guys are still technically employed. They will not be. They'll not, I know they yeah, won't be. Yeah. But I'm just saying. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I imagine that's just it's legal yeah. stuff. Lawyers saying we got to do no it this doubt. way. Um, we yeah. got to go. You know, same reason Rick Pitino wasn't immediately fired. Like there, you know, the the, the law uh, Louisville is a, a an, an institution that has I'm certain terrific lawyers, and they're going about this a certain way because it is it's smart to go about it uh, a certain way. But those guys will all be fired, and I can imagine they'll ever coach in, in, in college basketball again. The question is going to become, do their bosses go down with them? Does Bruce Pearl go down with Chuck Person? Does Sean Miller go down with Book Richardson? Does Andy Enfield go down with uh, Tony Bland? I, I would think probably not for Andy, probably not for Sean, and, and maybe probably not for Bruce, but uh, Bruce is obviously the one who seems most susceptible to to losing his job 
uh, connected to the scandal because he's a guy with NCAA issues in his past. And when you have NCAA issues in your past and you, um, you get a job and people wonder if you actually should have the job that you got, at least when, when he got it. Remember, Auburn hired him while he was still serving a show cause penalty. Like, he couldn't go out, I don't think, that, right. that first July because he was still serving the show cause. And so, right. Jay Jacobs, the athletic director there, uh, you know, essentially did uh, on some level what Tom Jurich did with Rick Patino, which has obviously cost Jurich his job, and it, it, it might end up costing Jacobs his job at Auburn. He stood by a guy who's got some stuff in, in his past who's got some stains on his Wikipedia page. And he said, this is my guy. Like, I'm vouching for this guy. And people said, hey, you know, he had NCAA troubles at, at Tennessee. You know, now you're bringing him onto campus. Even before he served his full NCAA penalty, you know, are you inviting more trouble to this college campus, more embarrassment to this college campus? And Jay Jacobs said, I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing. I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but that's essentially what he did because he, he, he made the hire. And I want to be clear. I, if I were Jay Jacobs, I would have done the same thing. Bruce Pearl's in a... Um, uh, an accomplished college basketball coach who brings enthusiasm uh, to a college campus, and 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 he, you know, that even though they haven't broken through and won at a big at a at a big in a big way at Auburn, um, they have sold out, I believe, every single year of season tickets at Auburn since Bruce has been the coach. So I'm not quibbling with what Jay Jacobs did. I'm not going to be a Monday morning quarterback here. I would have, if I were Jay Jacobs or frankly any other SEC program that needed a coach at the time, I would have done what what Auburn did, but. The problem becomes if you do it and it blows up on you, you might pay for your job. And now there's some thoughts that Jay Jacobs is going to lose his job. Uh, um, you know, the uh, the Birmingham News reported that late last week. And if you're Bruce, like this is going to un unless the FBI's information is wrong. Essentially, he employed somebody who was accepting tens of thousands of dollars from outside influences and then also sharing it with at least one player. Like, you've got a coach on your staff providing impermissible benefits to a, a player. Can you survive that if you're Bruce Pearl? You might be able to survive it if you're Sean Miller and just say, hey, uh, rogue assistant, what are you going to do? Andy Enfield, hey, rogue assistant, what are you going to do? They don't have NCAA stuff in their past, but Bruce sure. does, and that's uh, – you know uh, that that's a that's a tricky situation. I I, I you know I, I don't I'm not pretending I know where this is headed, but when you have that stuff in your past and this is in your present and your athletic directors on the ropes, uh, that can't be a comfortable situation. All right, so let's talk about these coaches and uh, won't get too deep into scuttlebutt, but um, I think some conversations and some just general wonderings that are happening around the business within coaching circles, media circles, etc. Start with Bruce. Um, I, listen, I'll, I'll share that I've had off-record conversations with a number of uh, head coaches, uh, a few of them high-profile, and they have astonishment that Bruce still has his job. Some relatively high-profile don't uh, have astonishment at it, and not even in a cynical way, um, because some believe that Bruce uh, couldn't possibly be dumb enough to be so brazen uh, to be to have knowledge of Chuck doing this kind of thing. And if you look. If you do look at like what person's charged with um, and, and the different items, uh, person was more of a renegade than the other three assistants. When you look at he was uh, doing double kickback schemes on himself and deceiving uh, multiple parties in this, uh, it's it's really bad for person who faces more um, potential uh, punishment from the legal system than the other assistants in the case. That being said. Uh, Pearl is definitely in a tricky situation. If he feels confident uh, in his position with his job right now, 
I suppose he has the right to, if in fact, let's just go hypothetical here, and Bruce didn't know one thing about this, okay? You want to say that, and so let's just say it's true. Well, even if that is true, uh, public perception is a, is a very uh, heavy thing that athletic directors are constantly aware of, and if Jacobs is to lose his job, which, by the way, I mean, he's already been dealing with um, – uh, an abuse scandal with his softball team, amongst other issues. And he's a longtime AD there, but there's been a push right. for Jacobs to leave that post for a good while. He's under some serious pressure. Jacobs goes, uh, that can roll downhill and hit Bruce still uh, in regard to that. So there's a lot to be determined there with Pearl and eligibility with some of his players. He's got to figure that out. He did have a press conference on Friday, and he basically offered up almost nothing, uh, which was kind of the expected route for him to take. At the same time, it's not a great look when he says, listen, I support, I stand by what the statement said, and the allegations are obviously totally unacceptable. That's really the all he went to. He deflected seven or eight questions uh, by, in regard by, by, to that. By the way, why even hold the press conference if that's what you're going to uh, do? Here's what, a great question because uh, we're on the same wavelength here. Why even hold the press conference? You're not because, obligated to speak to the media. You could just, like Sean hasn't talked to the media yet. Right. You could have just but, not talked. I agree. Um I could make a an, now listen. Right, yeah, you can make yeah. the argument. Listen, like Sean has not. Sean is so in the dark right now. Um, you can make the argument. It is a terrible look. Now, if Sean he, has Sean's, nothing. Sean's to, actually canceled speaking engagements that yes. he had scheduled. Like he hasn't only not talked to the media. He is like, hey, I'm supposed to speak to this club right. on Thursday. He canceled all that too. Now he is going right. to talk, I believe, this week. But it, for Bruce's perspective, and I'll let you explain why they might have done this. But like, if I'm in media relations there, I say, okay, um, uh, can we talk about any of this stuff? Cause you're going to be asked about it. And if the answer is no, we're not talking about it either because Bruce doesn't want to, or because a lawyer's told him not to, or because his athletic director or president has said, you can't, then you just say, okay, well then it's just going to be a bad look to hold the press conference. Let's just not hold the press conference. We don't have to talk to the media. We won't talk to the media. I don't understand why they put him in a situation where he had to stand there and just, uh, frankly look silly and, and, and like yeah. he's deflecting on camera. Yeah, it did not look it did not look good. Here's why I think it happened. Uh, because of the four head coaches that are connected to the assistants who have been charged in this case, Bruce is by far the most uh, <laughs> media ready, media friendly, however you want to say it, and clearly uh, was getting bombarded. Uh, I think Bruce probably felt as though it would have been a bad look to continue not to say anything. It would have only increased speculation for his job. And by coming out and at least publicly uh, putting himself in front of the arrows, it might have deflected some suspicion that he has guilt because if he was connected to this, he might be totally dark. That is not to impugn Miller, by the way, because Enfield has had a press conference and um, it didn't get quite as much traction. But Enfield, he said a little bit more, but not too much more in regard to it. Uh, so Enfield has come out and done this. But unlike Pearl, uh, Enfield's track record is relatively clean. Mike Boynton at Oklahoma State has not spoken publicly with the media yet. Either would not be surprised, however, if uh, he does meet with the media before the week is out. I think probably the same of Miller. Um, there's a lot of curiosity as to the job security of these guys. Enfield, people think that he is going to survive this from what I gather. I think you gather the same. Pearl is, is day by day because of his history with Miller. You know, I was told that uh, a board of regents, uh, and if I'm getting the term there wrong, I apologize, but a, a significant board of people have already met to discuss the state of the program, Miller's tenure, etc. The results of those conversations, I do not know. But regardless, Miller is totally in the dark right now. And he, you know, you had mentioned rogue assistants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The thing that hurts Miller in this case 
is unlike Enfield, who, yes, all these coaches know who they're hiring and know these guys relatively well. But, like, Boynton just got the Oklahoma State head coaching job, had been on the same staff with Evans for all but a year. Pearl did hire person. They didn't really have a pre-existing relationship before that. Bland and Enfield don't go back a ways. Book Richardson has been Sean Miller's guy for going a decade plus. So it hurts Miller from an outward perspective when you consider that he is the one guy that of all the assistants charged, they've known each other for so long. And when you work, GP, you and I have worked together Wow. I mean, we're we're coming up on the seven year mark here. We know our rhythms. We know our personalities. We don't know everything about each other, so to speak. But when it comes to our job, like we have a feeling for for how we're going to react to things. We just kind of we go yin and yang. We feel each other out. There's no reason not to believe that, especially when you've got to work uh, in concert with assistants and head coaches when it comes to recruiting because of how cutthroat it is. They wouldn't have those kind of expectations and know largely what's going on. I think that is something that Miller and I have to presume he has a lawyer at this point. His legal team are probably discussing with whomever needs to be discussed with that element of it. Um, I think it is better for Sean to, for him to get out as soon as possible. But obviously there is a reason he has not come out yet. To me, that's the big thing is like, when is he going to speak? What can he say? What will he say? Because on top of all this, he is the most – Bruce Pearl's plenty famous. Miller is considered the best coach in the group, the most high-profile, the most accomplished. He's got the team that some believe should be the preseason number one. There are plenty of players on that roster that have questions about speculation in terms of who is going to be eligible. So for me, Arizona is the big wait-and-see right now. I'll toss it back to you. Um, I do think there's a, a, a difference between what Chuck Person is alleged to have done and what Book Richardson is alleged to have done. Because um, it, 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 it seems pretty clear that Chuck was accepting tens of thousands of dollars from outside influences, but primarily like for himself. Like I don't yeah. know I don't know how Auburn's basketball program or Bruce Pearl benefited from what Chuck Person was doing. Uh, he was allegedly taking money with the promise being, hey, when these kids are ready to be professionals, I'm going to guide them to you. I've got influence over them. And then it appears that he was also taking some of that money and, and taking care of at least one player. You know, hey, don't tell anybody about this. This is a violation, but, like, put this in your pocket. You know, uh, you know, go buy you an iPad, whatever. Okay, so, so but, like, Auburn doesn't appear to be um, – doesn't appear to have benefited on a from a recruiting perspective from Chuck Person taking money. Now they might have benefited from a recruiting perspective for other reasons, but at least what's in those documents doesn't seem to suggest that. Arizona, on the other hand, was like I mean, Book Richardson is alleged to have been, you know, securing money to to buy a player, to buy a recruit. And it isn't just him, by the way. I want to remind listeners that there's another assistant that's you know right um, indirectly mentioned. So there. This thing just sprawls. So we wait on that as well. Continue. Right. Okay. So if you're Sean Miller, you, you, the reason you're nervous is because, like, Bruce Pearl, I think, can stand up and say, whenever he's allowed to talk, listen, what Chuck was doing was wrong, but, like, Chuck wasn't doing that for me. Like, you know, like, I didn't have Chuck. What, how do I benefit from Chuck Person taking $80,000, $90,000 with a promise to, to steer players to a financial advisor or a suit guy or an agent or whomever? Chuck Person didn't do anything to help me or help my basketball program. Chuck Person was out there trying to put money in Chuck Person's pocket. He's fired. 
Let's move on. I don't know if it's going to work, but I think Bruce Pearl can probably say that and be. You can say that. You can go back at him and be like, come on, dude. Like, you're recruiting these guys that aren't from the area that project as one and done, two and three kind of players, and obviously you're going to benefit from that. I'm just presenting. Yeah, no, no, no. If Pearl can say that. There is an easy retort. To no, no. Yeah, well, here's what. Here's my point is that, oh, I th- listen, Auburn has been recruiting well above historical standards. Um, I, I just. My point is that, and that's undeniable, my point is that in those documents, there is not evidence that Chuck Person went out and bought a recruit. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Now, right. how, did, how has Auburn been recruiting above historical standards? I mean, we might have a shoe company tr- you know, uh, situation there again. Um, yep. uh, Auburn is a, is a prominent Under Armour school. But either way, my point is that in the documents, there is not evidence that Chuck Person took, you know, was using money to go out and buy a five-star prospect from Alabama or whomever. There is evidence, at least what the FBI is alleging, that, that Book Richardson did that. That means that Sean Miller has benefited from Book Richardson breaking the rules, again, allegedly. Um, and that, that's, you know, that could affect Sean's uh, job status. It could also affect an Arizona team that some people are going to have preseason number one because, and forgive me if we talked about this on the last podcast, I, like we said earlier, I don't have any idea where I've said what. And how often I've said it, but um, there's there is at least a conversation between book and I believe an agent where it's stated that somebody on Arizona's roster already is is like has been taken care of, and like if if that's just a guy, then it's just a guy. But it could also be, and I'm not like I'm not trying to be reckless with allegations. I'm just saying it could theoretically be Alonzo Trier. It could be DeAndre Ayton. I mean, it could be a prominent Arizona basketball player. So it could affect their roster. It could affect Sean's job status. And I think at the very least, if what in those documents is proven to be true about Book Richardson, those conversations are um, are confirmed and legitimate and in the NCAA's hands, then at the very least, Sean gets a, a coach control charge, doesn't he? I mean, he's, he, he's got an assistant coach out there buying players. Taking care of players. I mean, that, that at the very least, you, you're you going to get a suspension like Jim Beheim got a suspension, like Rick Pitino was supposed to serve an ex, uh, uh, a suspension, like Larry Brown got a suspension. At the very least, that's in Sean's future. And what's so wild, and this is how much the college basketball world changed in the past week, what's so wild is that two weeks ago, like the idea that you'd have to that you'd get busted by the NCAA and maybe as a head coach have to serve a suspension for failure to monitor that was like a nightmare. And now yeah. I have I haven't talked to Sean, uh, uh, but I I bet I bet this is true. If you told Sean Miller right now your program's going to go on probation, we're going to rule one player ineligible, and you're going to do a nine game suspension, and that's it. Will you take it? I bet he'd take it. Probably would. Now. Um... As we talk, as we hit this kind of stage of the conversation, what's interesting here is there's been, you know, talk about uh, is college basketball, can it be saved, et cetera, et cetera. Some of that's over the top, in my opinion. Uh, the sport will be fine and it will recover from this. Like, it's done. Don't get me wrong. Like, this is for college basketball. It both needed this and it's uh, it's it's not uh, good for PR and for business, so to speak. But um, plenty of coaches do, do things the right way. But what, what, the point I'm trying to make here is that um, because of this, like with Miller, and others, this season is going to be really bizarre um, because you have this FBI investigation going on, and then you have the NCAA just kind of sitting there waiting in the wings. Now, don't get me wrong; like they're they're prepping 
the troops, so to speak, because there's a lot of stuff they got to get in order, a lot of separate investigations. Each one of these schools is going to be uh, an investigation to itself that will go, you know, to trial, so to speak, with the Committee on Infractions and all that stuff. We have all that coming, and uh, I think in the best interest of the schools, um, appealing those inevitable uh, judgments probably might not be in their best interest. But um, I think like this has done harm to Sean's reputation going forward, uh, there or not. And it's going to be really weird if we've got players on the court that are thought to be or people presuming that those players should not be on the court to begin with or should be under subject to review for ineligibility. You have coaches not yet serving suspensions, dealing with all this. That is what is going to be bizarre, almost carnival-like for college basketball. Um, I don't think it's something that the games will start, the coaches will be peppered the first two, three games with this, and then like we get to the first week of December and we're kind of like business as usual. We will have games, but we'll talk about them, we'll react to things, people will get hurt, we'll react to injuries, we'll react to surprising teams, we'll react to teams that are losing. But this, in general, is going to continue, it's going to pulse every day throughout the entire season because you don't know what's coming next. You don't know what's going to be revealed next. And to me, USC, yes, projects as a top 10 team, but Arizona with Miller, it's a totally different deal. I think you are absolutely right that he would take that right now. I do think a charge for him is inevitable. The question is, this kind of circles in with like, it's just not a great look for college basketball right now. When is that charge going to come? When will the NCAA be able to initiate its investigation? Is it going to fully wait until the FBI wraps this? If that's the case, well, when the hell is that going to be? Because it could be the first week of December. It could be next freaking August. And the NCAA cannot and should not be just sitting and waiting for eight, nine, ten months to do this. So if that's the case, though, you're going to have Miller coach an entire year waiting on this. Then he's going to be, in theory, punished, what, the season after that? What kind of suspension or probation might Arizona be put on? So it's, uh, it's something that... Obviously, it's just entirely captured uh, the sporting community, the coaching community, and everyone's kind of just sitting around being like, okay, what's going to be next? And there are plenty of coaches who are eager and wanting other programs to get busted. Uh, I won't mention those programs. Um, there are multiple ones. There, there's, there's blood in the water, <laughs> and a lot of coaches want other coaches they know have been cheating to get theirs. And it remains to be seen if that will happen. Well, um, like any prominent Nike school, prominent Adidas school, prominent Under Armour school has to be nervous right now. I don't have to name them. You, 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 you know, anybody who anybody who is into college basketball enough to listen to a college basketball podcast probably knows who they are. Um, but those schools should be nervous because um, I'm not here to incriminate anybody. If I had the, the proof, the evidence to... To, to write stories, I would have already written them. These things are hard to prove. It typically takes subpoena power, wiretaps, a flipped witness, so on and so forth. But I feel comfortable saying this. Brian Bowen's family is not the first family to benefit um, from a shoe company guiding it to a school. And Louisville is not the first school to benefit from a shoe company uh, influencing a student athlete to enroll at a specific school. This is not a story unique to Adidas, Brian Bowen, or Louisville. This stuff has gone on for a long, long time. Um, and there are schools that you and I both know have gotten recruits st like strictly and, and like pri pri primarily because a shoe company 
you know, got something done. And that works a couple of different ways. I feel like we should point out. One is the way that the shoe company actually did it, which is like, yo, we're going straight to the family. We're creating a fake invoice. We're funneling $100,000 out of the company and we're taking it right to Brian Bowen's family. That's what alleged to have, that is what is alleged to have happened here. The other way they do it, and I, I don't even want to use a school name because people will think I'm like talking specifically about that school. So let's just call it School A. Let's say School A has a has a contract with a big time shoe company. Doesn't matter which one because they're all involved in this stuff. Um, you say, uh, and then and then that 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 shoe company also has um, a, a, a grassroots program that it sponsors, you know, in, in a particular area. And now they've got a five-star recruit. Well, what the coach might do at this school is be on the phone with this guy who runs this grassroots program in, you know, that has this five-star recruit. And he'll say, okay, listen, uh, we like what you do. We like the way you run your program. We got a great relationship with you. And you, we know, you know that we're recruiting that kid. Um, obviously, we're going to let the kid's family make the decision, blah, blah, blah. But we know you have influence there. We need your help. Oh, by the way, how much is your budget? How much does the shoe company that we have a relationship with and that you have a relationship with, how much is your budget? How much do they give you every year? And the guy might say, uh, $75,000. That's what we get. We get our gear plus $75,000. And that might be excessive, but it's just a, it's just a number. And the, and the college coach says, okay, listen, well, you know so-and-so at that shoe company. That's my guy, Right. And so I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to call him. And I, I think I can probably get that doubled for you. I think I can probably get your budget expanded to 150000 So let me make that phone call. And you just remember who got that done for you when it's time for that young person to make a college decision. When we want you to bring him on campus unofficially, we need your help. When we want that commitment, we need your help. That coach, that coach, and that coach – they're not the ones getting you $75,000 more in your grassroots program budget from the shoe company. We're the ones doing that. I'm going to help you here. You help me there. That goes on a lot. And uh, I think that's been going on for a while. And I think any coach or program that's been involved in those types of dealings, um, they're nervous right now because we know we got two Adidas executives facing federal prison. They're going to talk. And we know that the FBI has the Nike EYBL documents, there's probably some interesting stuff in there. For instance, and I'm not trying to throw out reckless allegations, but let's let's just speak candidly. Marvin Bagley played with a grassroots program out of Nashville once upon a time, all right? Then a program Nike sponsored started being run by his father. There's no limits on what Nike could, can provide that grassroots program. They can give Team Penny whatever they want out of Memphis. They can give uh, the Mac Irvin Fire out of Chicago whatever they want. And they could, in this instance, literally give Marvin Bagley's father whatever he wanted. How much did Nike give Marvin Bagley's father to run that grassroots program out of Arizona? I don't know. But theoretically, the FBI has those documents right now. And if it, if it, if it turns out to be an obscene amount of money, will you be surprised? No. And, you know, I, I'm not implicating Bagley whatsoever. It is interesting that he was also heavily recruited by two of the schools uh, that have been busted here, USC and Arizona. 
And for those that might be dying for Duke to get busted or whatever, just keep in mind that, um, you know, their intent and uh, catching anyone actually breaking the rules there um, might be, again, oh, the and, FBI. And, oh, and to, to, let me be clear. There's not, like, Nike could legally. Yeah, this mean, could all be on the up and up, without N- a doubt. Nike could yes. give Marvin Bagley's father $500,000 to run that grassroots program, and there is, I don't believe technically, anything wrong with that. Nope. It's, there's not. Right. So, like, I'm not trying to say, well, they were che-. – it's not even cheating. It's just, like, how much did I, – I, 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 I just bet you this. There was a 0% chance all along that Marvin Bagley was going anywhere other than a Nike school. That would be a safe assumption, in my opinion. Um, that angle of it, by the way, and I don't want to get – because we could – we've talked about this a lot, and I really don't want to spend 20 minutes on this because we still got a couple other things to hit on the podcast. Well, how about this? The number one okay. prospect in 2018, R.J. Barrett. Do you see his final three list earlier this week? Did he cut Zona? Who did he cut? Uh, well, yeah, who is, it? who is Duke, Kentucky, and Oregon? Yeah, what they all have in common. Yeah, they're all Nike schools. Nike, yeah. Nike, and Nike. Yeah. Big Nike, big Nike, big Nike. Massive. Massive, yes. Uh, arguably the three biggest Nike schools because Oregon is obviously synonymous with Nike and then Duke and Kentucky. That's so, precisely my uh, point. Uh, this has also opened up um, because, like, again. Because, like, how, how could your three schools be Nike, uh, be Oregon? Like, whatever. I don't care. I'm just saying, <laughs> like, I don't even want to get into it. But it's just, it is, it's Nike, Nike, Nike. Continue. I hear you. I hear you. Um this has also, and let's just let's try and keep it succinct here for the, for now, because we'll probably have plenty of t- opportunities to get into this as this thing just carries out through the weeks and months. But this has also opened up um, another opportunity to discuss uh, the inherent issues with, and we I know we talked about killing the rule book last week, but just the NCAA model overall, and you know if this is uh, aside from the fact that like this shouldn't have to happen. Uh, where the players in a market should be getting uh, their fair value and all that stuff. But this has prompted people to ask the question, is the FBI's case going to be what catalyzes a a true change to amateurism? My answer to that, in short, is no. But I actually do believe there is a door that has been opened here that may stay open forever, and it's going to depend on whoever else gets charged in this, what other stories – bloom from this story from this particular case in this story to where we get to that point down the road i do think that the ncaa is going to have to come to terms with a lot of things have serious conversations about the reality of the model that it works with here so i know that this is uh rightfully so uh, an opportunity for people to point at the ncaa and say this has been decades in the making i think that is fair but i do not believe this investigation is going to slow and and stop uh, what is a just unfathomably gargantuan machine that is the NCAA that has zero interest in losing the amounts of money that it brings in. I do think it can alter the amateurism model somewhat in the years to come, but this is not going to change the overall structure of the NCAA in the next one, two, three, four, five years. I do not see any way that happens. The only way you get that kind of immediate change is literally by getting this thing to the Supreme Court level, having uh, federal laws overturned. There's already a case that's being fought right now on behalf of uh, Ed O'Bannon um, that's still going on. So 
just keep all that in mind. I know I'm, I'm with a lot of people that, that criticize the NCW when it comes to this, and Parrish is as well, and we'd like to see changes. Uh, but that is a massive ship that will take decades to turn. I do think, though, this will be something that we look back in 15 years. We'll have a different climate in the NCAA. I think in 15 years from now, we will have college freshmen who are making money um, off of their likeness and earning uh, money above board. And I think we will be able to look back and say there was a lot of momentum before September of 2017, but that case really did truly rattle the cage and altered the course of history. Do you disagree with that? I, I mean, I, I think everything you're saying is basically right. Like there, the, this isn't going to end amateurism. It, it, it like, and this shouldn't be what ends amateurism. Common sense should be what ends amateurism. It, it is ridiculous. The, uh, the model with which we use to, 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 to run this billion dollar interest industry, you know, like when amateurism was, was first implemented at the collegiate level, we weren't talking about basketball coaches making $8 million a year, football coaches making the same. Um, we weren't talking about 100,000-seat football stadiums and 20,000-seat basketball arenas and billion-dollar television contracts and um, $160 million apparel deals. And, and But we are now. Those are all real things that happen right now. And the idea that we still tie it to a foundation of amateurism is just, it's ridiculous. And it is the core of all of this. Um, I've read a lot of columns over the past week and uh, people have tried to blame this on a variety of things. Um, The truth is it it should be blamed on, on amateurism. You know, when, when, when you have prospects who are obviously valuable, and this is something I've been saying for years, I've written about it. I've talked about it. And, uh, the people who push back love to insist, no, these student athletes aren't really w- worth what you think they're worth. Well, you can't say that anymore. Brian Bowen was worth $100,000. I mean, that's true. I mean, that happened. And so we know we know a borderline top 20 prospect. I mean, keep in mind, we ain't talking about Marvin Bagley. We ain't talking about Lonzo Ball. We're talking about a top 20 guy who's good, but he's not even like a guaranteed one-and-done lottery pick. He's worth $100,000. Um, we know that shoe company executives were caught on a wiretap talking about a $150,000 deal for another player who's believed to be a class of 2018 prospect, top 10 kid in Florida. So don't tell me these, these, these people aren't valuable. They are. And they're valuable to a lot of different folks. And forgive me if I said this on the last podcast. I know I've said it somewhere. Don't know if I said it here. They're valuable to college coaches. Why? Because if you get a few of them, you can win a lot of games. The best way to win in college basketball is to get the best players. That's why Duke and Kentucky are always good, because they always get the best players. So if you're a college basketball coach, you get a few of these guys, you get a contract extension. can literally be worth millions of dollars to your bank account. So they're, the prospects are valuable to college coaches. They're valuable to universities. Why? Because if you get enough of them, you win. You win enough, you uh, sell more season tickets. You, uh, you know, have an opportunity to advance in the NCAA tournament, with this which worth, uh, which is worth money. So they're valuable to coaches and universities. Also valuable to agents. Why? Because if you invest in them early, get that relationship solidified, and they become lottery picks, NBA players. I mean, we're talking about kids who can be multimillionaires at the age of nineteen. You get a percentage of that money. 
This next contract can be worth $200 million. You get a percentage of that. So there were coaches, there were something to coaches, to universities, to agents, and also shoe companies. Why? If you're Adidas and you sign a $160 million apparel deal with Louisville, what is another $100,000 to make sure Louisville's got good players so that it stays good? It's nothing. It's pennies. So they, these student athletes are worth something to coaches, to universities, to agents, and to shoe companies. And yet we have a system in place that says they're not allowed to get anything above scholarship and stipend. Well, they're going to take it. There's always going to be somebody willing to do what they have to do to gain an advantage recruiting them. And there is typically going to be somebody connected to that prospect. It might be the prospect himself, could be a parent, could be an uncle, could be a brother, could be a grassroots coach, could be a high school coach. There's, there's typically going to be somebody who's willing to accept what somebody else is offering. That will never change. And once you understand that will never change, you have to understand that the system is flawed to its core. People ask me all the time, how do you clean up college basketball? You don't, you, you have to make what is now illegal, legal. It's a little bit like, um, how do you get people to stop getting charged with possession of marijuana? Well, you don't, you don't make it a crime? Then it, then, then it doesn't happen anymore? And so uh, I don't think we're headed this direction anytime soon. But until you do away with the amateurism model, and replace it with the Olympic model, which essentially means let student athletes go out and get whatever they can get from whoever they can get it from, and 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 now let's go play games. Until you get closer to that, if not exactly that, uh, the, the, the cheating is never, ever, ever going to weigh. This is going to scare people straight for a little while. I had one assistant coach tell me the class of 2018 is going to go down as the cleanest recruiting class in the history of college yeah, basketball. Sure. Um, it, it'll scare people straight for a little while, but... You know, give it a, give it six months. Give it a year. Uh, we'll look up. And as long as the amateurism model is still in place, uh, this stuff is going to keep happening. Yeah, you did touch on a lot of that with last week's podcast, but the remix was even better. Um, so it's all good. Last thing I want to touch on before we uh, swerve and touch on <laughs> the man who could not go one week without getting his name in the headlines, of course. Um, so let's hit Louisville and Patino real quick because right. when we last spoke, uh, we did think that within the next 24 hours, Patino would be out of a job. We didn't get too deep into Louisville. Um, don't need to get too, too deep here. But uh, broad thoughts. One, I've got a story up. If you want to look at potential candidates down the road, uh, 10 names that, that could be up for the job down the way. David Pagin has promoted, been promoted to interim head coach for Louisville right now. Um, we'll see if he remains that because this really could not have happened. At a worse time for Louisville, not only was the season right around the corner, they're in the midst of an appeal of an NCAA investigation. They're already on probation. Their assistant gets busted with an, at least one with an FBI wiretap. That'll prompt another investigation for the NCAA, which will have to take into account its current investigation and probation could lead to some serious penalties. I don't think the death penalty is on the table personally. With all of that, they have an interim AD they're going to announce about two hours away from when we're recording this podcast. Tom Jurich's future seems to be out, but then again, like every coach and some serious power players there are still fighting for him. So if he winds up saving his job, that's a whole other kettle of fish there that we'll deal with at another time. With all of this, um, they still don't even they have an interim president as well. Patino is living in Miami, is already looking to sell his house in Louisville, and he loves you know loves that area. Okay, it, it really uh, Jeff Greer out of the Courier Journal. Uh, spoke to Patino briefly on Sunday and just had a report. 
Pitino said he'd be vindicated. Also said it does not. I think the quote is it doesn't matter. End quote. Whether or not he is coached two. In the FBI's complaint, CBS News first reported, I believe, on Friday morning that Patino is indeed coach two. That is damning as hell if it is him and will impact Louisville in a seriously negative way on behalf of the NCAA. Even with the disassociation of Patino, I still think there's going to be aftershocks with the NCAA's punishment if, in fact, Patino is coach two and what was all was going on there. The Cardinals are an absolute mess right now. Uh, Page- I, w- I would have been fine with Crean. You put Pagenin, in, that's okay. But again, he's got the Patino connection. Um, you have to think that Louisville vetted out Paget as as strongly as it possibly could because you cannot put an interim head coach in position if you think even remotely he knew about what was going on. But that's not going to stop everyone else from judging Louisville for doing the same. I understand practices were just about to start. Cardinals, we have dropped. You dropped them uh, in the preseason top 25-1. and one. Who knows what the hell to make of this team. Patino's going to fight big time for his money. Uh, that's probably going to get really ugly. And we'll just have to wait and see what comes because it's been a huge week of movement for Louisville. They're kind of getting some pieces in place. There is still so much to be sorted out here. Um, and it is really, though the job remains, in my opinion, even with sanctions, a clear-cut top 10 job in America. Um, this, to me, has as much long-lasting damage to the reputation of Louisville basketball as any program in college football or college basketball ever. Like when you hear SMU football, you know what you think. It still has never gone away. It's going to be the same with Louisville, if not worse. Um, but I don't believe that they will be issued the death penalty. Back to you. I don't think they'll get the death penalty. Um, if only because I don't think the NCAA has any interest in doing that. I mean, you have to understand that um, these leagues have massive television contracts and, and, whether it's CBS, ESPN, ABC, whatever, Fox, um, you know, schools, I mean, uh, conferences sign television contracts worth millions and millions of dollars, and they are based uh, largely on the inventory that that league can provide. And part of that basketball inventory for the ACC is Louisville. And so if I'm a television network executive and I've committed to a long-term ACC contract, and we also have relationships with the NCAA. I'm saying, hold up. You can't take one of my primary properties and and kill it like that that devalues the the television contract that we've agreed to. And it just gets really, really messy at the highest levels of the sport, and it it actually affects, you know, it's it's a money thing. And so I don't think the NCAA has any just like I don't I I the the NCAA never had any interest in trying to really genuinely regulate the shoe company's influence in recruiting because they have relationships with the shoe companies. Um, I don't think the NCAA has any interest in taking Louisville and killing that program because it, it, it has a negative impact on, on television networks that have already signed contracts. And I don't think the NCAA wants to, to mess those up. I'm not saying it, no chance that Louisville gets the death penalty because let's be clear. If any program was susceptible, you know, ever deserved it, it's probably this one. Like, you know, you're caught in a ridiculous, embarrassing scandal and you're just right back to doing, you're just right back to cheating. I mean, big time cheating. Like, that's bad. If somebody wants to argue Louisville deserves the death penalty, I'll nod in agreement. Uh, But is Louisville going to get the death penalty? Um, I'd be surprised. As for Rick, uh, there was no way he was going to survive this. When we talked last Tuesday night, he still technically had his job, but I think you and I were in agreement. He he wasn't going to keep it uh, because you can play the rogue assistant 
card one time, but you can only play it one time. And when you have to play it again or you try to play it again so soon after you played it the last time, it's just not going to work. You, um, because either one of two things happened with Rick. Either he was in on the cheating, which is unforgivable and a fireable offense, clearly, or um, he had absolutely no control over his staff and they were out there cheating. And that's obvious. That's, in my opinion, also a fireable offense. Yeah, I, I've, um, I, I, I sat in a meeting one time with a, with a coach who had just gotten a job. And I don't know if I've ever named him, and I don't know if he'd want me to say it, so I won't name him, but he's a, he's a big-time college basketball coach. And he had a contract worth like $18 million, $20 million, whatever. And he had his entire staff in his office assistant coaches, administrative people, ops guy, everybody, literally everybody who works under him was in this office, plus me. And he was holding his contract, and he actually, if I remember correctly, passed out a copy of it to, to everybody in the room, myself included. And he said, now turn to this page. Now here's this clause, like he was going through it. But the main point he made was, um, he said, I am guaranteed every penny of this contract. And it was like $18 million, $20 million. I can lose every game. They have to pay me this, $20 million. Let's just use $20 million because it's a round number. I'm, I'm guaranteed $20 million. I can lose every game. They got to pay me. I can never get another five-star, four-star recruit. They got to pay me. The only way they don't have to pay every penny of this is if they can fire me for cause. And the only way they're going to be able to fire me for cause is if I get caught cheating. Or if you get caught cheating. Now, I know I'm not going to cheat. So I'm not worried about me. But I want to make it perfectly clear to everybody in this room. I am not a head coach who's trying to put pressure on you to go out and do what you got to do to get things done. I'll turn my head. I want this money. I like five-star recruits. I like four-star recruits. I love this money. I'm not losing this money. So if... You get caught. So if, if I even think you're cheating, you're fired. I'm not, you're not going to cost me $20 million, none of you. And whether he was doing that for show or not, I don't know. But I just know that it was a message, strong message sent to his staff. And that's frankly the message that ideally, if you're an administrator at Louisville, Rick Patino would have sent to his assistants. Either he, A, didn't do that because he was in on the cheating. So, like, it would have been insincere. Or B, he didn't do that, at which point he had no control over his assistance, which means that it's time to go. And I hate that his Hall of Fame career ended this way because on a personal level, I like Rick Pitino, and I think he's one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all time. But uh, given what we knew last Tuesday, there was no way to survive it. And then when it was confirmed that he is coach two, um, it especially became clear that, that there was no way for him to go forward. Um, as Louisville's basketball coach. And it's important to note that Rick has not denied that he is coach two. He's essentially just told the Courier Journal, it doesn't matter if I'm coach two. Yeah. <laughs> but which I think he can technically stand by because yeah. here's what he's going to be able to say, at least for now. Yeah, I talked to Jim Gatto. Uh, why wouldn't I? I get money from Adidas. He, um, you know, he, he's involved with Adidas Nations. He's involved with a lot of prospects. He sees these kids probably more than I do. Why wouldn't I be on the phone with Jim Gatto? It's ridiculous to, to think that that's crazy, independent of everything else. And I don't care what a grassroots basketball coach in Florida said about how big of a dick I swing at Adidas. Uh, he was just talking like, like that guy talks. 
I, I, he's got no proof that I ever did a deal with Adidas. He's just talking. So, like, Rick can say that for now. The problem, of course, is that we know for a fact he was on the phone around the time the Brian Bowen stuff was going down with Jim Gatto. And we also know for a fact that Jim Gatto is facing federal prison. My guess is if it ain't already happened, it's going to happen soon. The FBI is going to say, we know you talked to Rick Pitino on this day. Did you talk about Brian Bowen? Did you talk about the money? Did he ever ask you to do anything on his behalf or his program's behalf? And I'm not sure what Jim's answers are going to be, but if they are what I think they might be, well, then Rick's defense of, hey, I didn't know, that's going to go out the window completely. Uh, Good story there, and well said. Now, what the hell is LeVar Ball doing? Uh, Being LeVar Ball, um, it broke on... Monday night, he is pulling LaMelo Ball out of Chino Hills High School, and he's now going to homeschool him. And his rationalization for doing this is that he doesn't like the coach, he doesn't like the principal. And uh, listen, uh, it is fair to and, 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 and right to, to note that LeVar is controversial. He's divisive. Some people, like he's a star but like a lot of people don't like him. Every, basically everything he's done as it relates to his son so far has worked out. Like I've made the point a million times. He's raised three boys who have never been in any sort of criminal trouble, like never been in any kind of real trouble at all. They're all, by all accounts, good students, decent young men. They're all immensely talented athletes. Lonzo, obviously, like is in Las Vegas right now, projected to be the NBA Rookie of the Year. He's the face of that Lakers franchise, at least until LeBron shows up next July, maybe. Um, uh, LiAngelo, say what you want to about him, but he's a Division One athlete. That's probably better than any of my kids are going to be. And and Lamelo is is a consensus five star recruit. I think that gets lost sometimes. I had so many people on Twitter last night being like, uh, "Lamelo Ball sucks," or "Lamelo Ball's not Lonzo." Okay, he's not Lonzo, but you don't have to be Lonzo to be good. Like somebody said, he's a borderline D one talent. No, he's not. Like we can debate whether he's a top 20 kid, top 30 kid, if you want to, but he is a consensus top 20 player in America. He's top 20 at rivals. He's top 20 at ESPN. He's top 20 at 24 seven sports. He's good. So those are the kids that LeVar has, has raised, uh, obviously with his wife. Um, they, uh, and, and so, and they've done it unconventionally. Like, they didn't go to a basketball factory. They just stayed at their neighborhood high school. They didn't join a big, you know, grassroots program. They didn't play for the Compton Magic. He just did it his own way. Like, they didn't bounce around the country visiting all these schools. They just said, hey, we're in Southern California. We're going to be in Southern California. We're going to UCLA, and it's done. They did it unconventionally, and it's all worked out. So it's possible this will work out too. But the only thing I don't like is that when LeVar was asked to explain his decision for pulling LaMelo out of school, it had nothing to do with LaMelo. He didn't say LaMelo doesn't like his coach. LaMelo doesn't want to be there anymore. LaMelo wants to uh, just focus on training and be done with high school basketball. It was, about, it was all about what LaVar wanted. And listen, he's the dad. He's got the right to do it. But uh, yeah, I think you're really risking something when you start making drastic decisions for your 16-year-old when it's not obvious that it's in the best interest of your 16-year-old. This is surprising yet not shocking if that makes any sort of sense. Um, 
we'll, we'll see where it goes from here, I guess. Um, uh, forget about what this does to his eligibility, um, if he'll even want to go into college at this point, if he's even a member of UCLA's basketball program two and a half years from now. I have no idea. Um, he's going to get <laughs> relentless training. I mean, he'll be, he'll be prepped and good to go, I guess. Uh, it also brings, by the way, um, him not being uh, enrolled in high school will bring – um, and obviously LeVar has thought about this because I think he thinks about every single element when it comes to his family and exposure. Um, when LaMelo plays for Big Baller Brands travel basketball team next spring and next summer, it will bring even more interest because he will not, we won't have the highlights of him shooting 20 times a game from 35 feet out or, or, or dropping 74 points against who knows where in California in the middle of December or whatever, we're not going to have those anymore. And so um, the absence of having LaMelo clips, which there certainly is an internet and social media economy for, I think will bring even more interest to it. Long-term, I can't speak to if this is going to be good for LaMelo or not, both as a player uh, and as someone who's being raised as, as you know, a 16-year-old living a very different existence from 99.9999% uh, of all other 16-year-olds ever. Uh, but perhaps it's good, and perhaps he'll be uh, able to handle it. But, you know, who's to say what it means for his, his eligibility? There have been players that have been homeschooled before in basketball and in other sports. Homeschooling is not completely uh, abnormal to the process. The NCAA deals with um, – prospective student athletes uh, division one two II, and three who are homeschooled every single year so from that angle they're not going to be thrown by this but uh lavar if if we get to the point where Lamelo is going to play college basketball and it's going to be at ucla and he's going to have to go through uh the ncaa review process on that um there's plenty that he will have to do over the next two years to get Lamelo eligible in that case remains to be seen if he even wants him to be eligible to begin with uh but you know it's it's another ball story. It's another week. In the midst of this FBI stuff, of course. Of course. <laughs> it, it, story. it does complicate things. I mean, because you are putting LaMelo on an unconventional path to either A, the NCAA, or B, the NBA. Um, Justin Jackson is a former homeschooled high school student who is in the NBA, but uh, you know, he, he might be the only one. Um, I, I, I sort of crowdsourced this last night on Twitter, and uh, yeah, uh, and I didn't get a whole lot of answers. People are like, "Well, I think this kid went to homeschool when he was in seventh grade." And like, how many finished their high school careers as a homeschool student? Uh, Justin Jackson's the only definitive answer uh, that I got. The point I tried to make in the column is that there are certain basketball prospects who who are almost impossible to screw up. Uh, like LeBron James could have, you know, played high school basketball or not played high school basketball, played grassroots basketball, not played grassroots basketball. Uh, been coached by awesome uh, coaches or by me, he was still going to become King James. Kevin Durant, probably same deal. And I think Kevin Durant did bounce around, do a lot of different stuff. Marvin Bagley, same deal. He's bounced around. He's just, they're physically gifted, uniquely gifted prospects. Um, it doesn't matter where they went to high school. It doesn't matter where they went to college. They were always going to be what they are. I don't know if that's true for LaMelo Ball. And, 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 it, is, and it is true that, uh, parents have uh, damaged prospects' careers before, and the the name that I referenced in in the column is Renardo Sidney. You know, Renardo Sidney was um, like widely regarded to be the best freshman in America when he was a freshman in high school, and he was in the same class as like John Wall and Demarcus Cousins, and he was from Mississippi, and 
his family at under sketchy circumstances moved him to California while he was in high school. And he, he, he I think got ruled ineligible. So he stopped playing high school basketball and he put on weight and then they had eligibility concerns. And I think he had to miss like a season and a half before he ever enrolled at Mississippi state or ever played for Mississippi state. And then when he did, Oh, and, and by the way, they, they created so many red flags that like USC couldn't recruit him. I think UCLA declined to recruit him at the end. So it wasn't like Mississippi State got him because Mississippi State beat all these big-time schools. It was like Mississippi State got him because there were like schools that literally would not accept his commitment. And by the time he like was in a structured environment playing basketball again, he just wasn't the same guy. And I Googled him last night, and like I can't find I don't know where he is. Last thing I saw on his Wikipedia page is that he was drafted number one overall by something called the California Basketball Association which is obviously like some yeah, CBA, of course, yeah, yeah, the CBA. And so it's just like, uh, you know, if, if they would have never, his parents never messed with the, the structure that was in place for him that allowed him to once upon a time, be considered a better basketball prospect than John wall and DeMarcus cousins. It's possible. He would have, in fact, I think it's likely that he would have become something different than what he is today, which is an all time great bus story. And I'm certainly not predicting that for LaMelo, and I'm damn sure not hoping for it because I don't root against young people no matter what decisions their parents make. But if I were LeVar, I'd be careful because I just told you a story about a kid who was pulled out of his structure and it messed him up. And now, like, LaMelo Ball is going to go uh, presumably uh, you know, nine months without playing structured basketball. You know, he's he's not going to be in school. He's going to lose. And really, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, nine months without structured and then two years, essentially, without truly structured, you know. Well, like well, one of the reasons. OK, so Scal Labissier went to Kentucky, right? He's he's from uh, here in Memphis where or he, he, played, he went to high school here in Memphis where where I live. Um, you know, he didn't play high school basketball his final two years in high school. One, his junior year he was hurt and his senior year because he transferred schools for reasons that didn't make a whole lot of sense, um, he was ruled ineligible by the uh, tennis TSSAA. And a lot of people, and I don't know that I completely buy this, but I certainly think it played a role. The reason he struggled at Kentucky in that one-and-done year is because, like, he hadn't really played basketball for two years. And so, like, not playing basketball, even if it's all over the place, grab the ball, shoot the ball, grab the ball, shoot the ball, like, still putting on a uniform, being around teammates, like, that, that there's a benefit to that. Um, and, and, and I, I, I'm worried that LaMelo might, uh, you know, might suffer because he's not going to be doing that, uh, for the rest of his high school career, which is, again, maybe he's so gifted that it's going to work out regardless, but I, I don't think I'm a fan of, of what they're doing here. All right. Can we wrap up with, uh, some of the news of the past 24 hours? It's been a hell of a week, right? Um, uh, obviously Sunday night, the. The mass shooting in in Las Vegas at a at a concert, it is now uh, on record as the the deadliest mass shooting in modern United States history. It it broke the record. Let's not celebrate it, but broke the record set um, last year um, at Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Which means the two deadliest mass shootings in you know, modern United States history have happened both in the past sixteen months. And this one is especially. Uh, I don't know, just 
uh, horrific for a, a couple of different reasons. A, just the sheer number of people involved. 59 confirmed dead, more than 500 injured. Um, I had a guy on my radio show yesterday who's from Memphis and happened to be at the concert with his wife. Like, he was there. And he he got out um, physically unharmed, mentally mentally harmed, but but physically unharmed, uh, just by luck. I mean, you know, we can you can thank God or think whatever you want. It just it's lucky, like you know, like uh, the bullets didn't hit you; they hit other people, but they didn't hit you. Um, so just the sheer number of people involved is horrific, heartbreaking. Um, but also because it is a place that is so familiar to all of us. You know, particularly people in basketball circles. We spend parts of every year in Las Vegas. I've stayed at that Mandalay Bay with my family. I've been on those streets in Las Vegas. So have you. We've been to concerts in Las Vegas. That wasn't us on Sunday night, but it could have been any of us, theoretically. And, uh, I mean, wow. So you you either go to bed Sunday night uh, with that in your head, or you wake up Monday morning to this incredible uh, tragic news. And then by Monday afternoon, we learned that, that Tom Petty is, um, is, is on the verge of death and he uh, ultimately died late Monday night at a hospital in Santa Monica after suffering a cardiac arrest at home. By the time he got to the hospital, the reports are that um, he was unconscious, he had no brain activity, so it was just a matter of time. And that time came uh, last night. And I don't know, man. Like, I've always been pretty good and uh, about sort of detaching and, like, you know, saying, oh, man, that sucks or that's too bad or I'm sad. But, like, not really getting, like, not really, like, having things that don't actually affect my life. I've, I've, I've been pretty good for the most part of, like, oh, you know, that's too bad, but, like, I'm okay. Like, okay, okay. Is that affecting my wife? No. My children? No. My father, my mother, my brother? No. Okay, then it's sad, but like, you know, I, I don't get shaken by deaths of strangers too often. But that one got me yesterday, man. And I don't know if it was just sort of the, the carryover from like waking up, realizing what happened in Las Vegas and just being emotionally drained and then this added to it. Or if it was just, yo, man, Tom Petty is a soundtrack to my life. Like, uh, for as long as I can remember, I've been listening to Tom Petty songs. And you, uh, I, I think, are, are, are better are, um, better equipped to speak about his impact on music than I. But I tweeted this last night, and I think it's true. Everybody loves at least one Tom Petty song. Like, Tom Petty might not be your favorite artist, but I don't know anybody who hates Tom Petty. In the way, you know, like, who, like Tom Petty is an amazing songwriter um, who, who, who recorded some of the, uh, the most well-known songs in, in this world. And um, to lose him so abruptly, you know, this wasn't a guy who was diagnosed with cancer and then died eight months later. This was a guy who was on tour as recently as a week ago. He was in Memphis a couple of months ago. And uh, to lose him so abruptly, you know, you just start, you, you listen to the songs again and you remember what they meant to you at certain times. And that one got me pretty good last night. Yeah, and uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit briefly about it on the podcast, just you know, to tag this because you know we both we, we love our music and uh, Petty Man. I, I, this was just 
in the in the way that like Prince dying was just out of nowhere, way too young. And I tweeted, you know, basically, like I thought Petty was going to make music into his 80s and be like the next Willie Nelson. Like Willie Nelson, bless his heart, he is still going, an absolute American treasure, an icon. Petty is is pretty much at that level. Um, and yeah, like who hates Tom Petty? Like nobody. And if you do, like you ain't hanging with me because <laughs> there's, there's something wrong with you if if that's the case. If you don't like at least one or two Petty songs, uh, you might want to get that checked out there. Um, real quick on his discography, you know, his greatest hits record, which came out in '93, is really among the best ever. And in fact, I've also, I've often equa- equated uh, the Foo Fighters to the modern day Petty and the Heartbreakers, and that the Foo Fighters are a great band. But they are also a tremendous greatest hits band. If you check out that Foo Fighters greatest hits record and you go back and look at the Petty and the Heartbreakers, an incredible band. But if even if like you're not totally into the album thing, you just want to listen to the hits. Few artists, obviously, you know, something like the Eagles comes up. I think Billy Joel could have a case for this. And you remove like the Beatles like they don't count. Like they're, they're removed from this altogether. Um, that greatest hits album that came out in 93 is huge. And, you know, there are only a handful of songs that I can remember where I was the first time I ever heard them. Um, so I was a kid growing up in Vermont uh, in 1993, and I remember I would I would go to bed. I might have mentioned this on the podcast once before. If not, I mentioned it on my music podcast. But I had this tiny little yellow radio, and I'd listen to the radio as I fell asleep at night, and there'd be like the top nine at nine or whatever. And uh, But I remember the first time they ever played Mary Jane's Last Dance. Right. And I did not like I didn't know Petty. I'm like maybe 11, 12 years old. That was really the first time I can ever identify like knowing Petty's music clicked with me automatically. Um, In my opinion, it's probably one of the three or four best songs on a best records collection. And I think that's the only artist you could ever say that for. Usually if there's like that one tag on song like, okay, we wrote one song to just throw into the greatest hits. It's kind of like a whatever. Mary Jane's Last Dance carves a thick groove. I love that tune. Um, Damn the Torpedoes is probably his most well-acclaimed record with the Heartbreakers. Full Moon Fever is a huge, huge independent album. It has Free Fallen, which is actually the only Petty song I truly do not like. Um, the two two Petty songs that a lot of people love that just don't do anything for me are Free Fallen and American Girl, but pretty much every other one. How could you I'm not right like there. American Girl? It just, dude, I know. I, I'm, not, I'm not like, I do. it just doesn't do anything for me. Just whatever. It just never has. Um, but uh, but uh, Full Moon Fever also has, like, I Won't Back Down, Running Down a Dream, an absolute badass song. And then Wildflowers, which um, is an underrated uh, solo tune, which also has uh, a lot of collaboration from, from – the Heartbreakers are basically on it, but it, it was billed as a petty solo record. Right. It's got You Don't Know How It Feels, which is such a great stoner jam. Uh, but, yeah, this hit hard, man. I just – I saw McCartney two weeks ago in concert, finally, and it was it was absolutely a bucket list item. You know, he is just a mammoth figure in in human history. Frankly, I think he's the greatest melody writer we've ever had uh, from a pop music standpoint. And before the show, I was with my parents, and we were just talking about like the other people. Like my father has just made a a point of just seeing more consciousness here. Like he saw Clapton, he saw Seeger. Um, and so on and so on. And we talked about like, okay, next year, let's see Petty because we hadn't seen him. And then lo and behold, less than two mm-hmm. weeks later, he dies. It is just like, I, I'm frustrated eternally with the fact that I just did not get around to seeing him in time. Uh, we lost, we lost a big one there. Um, uh, and not to get too dark on this, but like these, these, 
these desks, specifically like musicians, because we connect so hard with the music and so intimately, um, they feel so personal. And I just got to thinking, like, you know, Petty was among, I, I wouldn't list him among my 10 favorite artists, but he would definitely be up there, top 20, top 25. Just, he was truly uh, like an everyman kind of rock star. Like, he didn't have a great voice. He didn't have, like, this incredible image. He looked like a guy that grew up in every town USA, had a band, and, like, freaking made it. And I think he inspired so many people to get into the music business in that way. But I was wondering who are the like three, four or five. And I'll preface this. Like, I don't want any of these people to ever die. Right. <laughs> like, but like, there are people that you were, that you worry about. Like Dylan isn't on my top five, but it's, it's, it's amazing to me that we still have Bob Dylan. That's a lot. Okay. Even if you don't like him, his influence and his, I mean, he is a top five all time American musician, worldwide musician, but I'm just wondering who are the artists for you that you have the strongest personal connection to that are, uh, that are still walking the soil. Um, obviously when McCartney goes, yep. that'll be one that gets, that gets me pretty good. I mean, he's, uh, like, you know, I, I'm a huge Beatles fan. Uh, I, I grew up a huge Beatles fan. Like I've literally been listening to the Beatles my entire life. Um, I've seen McCartney. Um, I know you saw McCartney recently. Um, yep. like that one will get me good because, Obviously, I've never met Paul McCartney, but, you know, every time you see him in an interview setting or just any like on Instagram or wherever on social media, he just seems like something other than Paul McCartney. You know, you like I like he is a living legend icon and yet he doesn't appear to carry himself that way. Does that make sense? It, it does. Yeah. And it's incredible how good he is at his age, by the way, performing live. Dude, when I saw him and this was maybe three, four years ago. I've seen him twice. I saw him many, many years ago when I was a kid um, at the Liberty Bowl in Memphis. And then I saw him a few years ago at FedEx Forum. And I believe at the time he was – how old is he now? He's 74, 75. Yeah, I think I saw him when he was – I think when he was like 70, 71. And, man, I mean, we were, we were you know front and center, right down low. And, boy, I mean, he could still sing all the songs. Like, he looked like Paul McCartney and he sounded like Paul McCartney. And that's not easy to do with that age. Like, I've – I saw Dylan a few years ago, and just because you know, listen, it's Bob Dylan. You go see Bob Dylan, but he can't he can't quite do it the way he used to do it. And I think he would acknowledge that. Um, Paul McCartney can still do it like he like he like he's forever done it. And um, so that one will get me good. Um, Willie Nelson, the, the person you mentioned, that that uh, maybe for the same reasons, we might be able to find a, a common thread here, like. I've never met Willie Nelson, but I've listened to Willie Nelson my entire life, really got into him when I was in college for some reason. I don't know why something clicked there, but I like like my you know, I would go like Willie Nelson was something that I listened to on the regular. And he just seems like like like, again, a, a walking, talking, living legend icon. But like if you bumped into Willie Nelson at a Waffle House, you could probably like he he seems like the type of person that you could that you could have a five minute conversation with. I, I don't know that he is. Like he might be surrounded by bodyguards who say, yo, get away, this is Willie Nelson. What are you doing? But he seems very approachable. Um obviously a brilliant songwriter. That one will get me good. And then if we're looking for somebody who's maybe a little younger and you know who was more uh who was making music when I was a teenager, um I thought about this last night when you tweeted me. 
this might be a, a weird answer. Adam Duritz. I thought you were going to say that. And the reason is because uh, that, you know, uh, I think if you were a teenager who had ever, like, been slightly unhappy, <laughs> you probably connected with Adam Duritz. You, you connected with, I mean, those albums. I mean, August and Everything After. I still think is one of the best albums of the 90s. Like, I, I love that. I mean, is that you? you are, you're more of a music It's very kid. good. It's my, I, I just, heart wants what it wants. Uh, it is not my favorite Counting Crows record, but I still absolutely love the record. It is one of my favorite records, period. Like, if you know, sometimes people do this list of, like, name your top five records of all time. And I, they come from different parts of my life, but uh, and and they're there for different reasons. So like Abbey Road would be on mine, and that's not even most people's favorite Beatles that's album. My favorite Beatles record it is sure. it is my favorite Beatles album. So Abbey Road would be on there. Appetite would probably be on there just because it like really made an impact on me when it was released. You know, that's still a. Um, I mean, everybody knows that album. Um, you know, uh, Ryan Adams' Heartbreaker might be on there. Some I love that album. Um, uh, Kanye's Dark Fantasy is probably on there. It's my favorite. Yeah, I figure you're going to say Kanye to this question. Though. Yeah, but he doesn't even seem like a real person to me. You know, okay. it, it, like Adam Derwitt seems like a real person to me. August and everything after would be on that list for me. And so um, what's wild is that like, dude, I can't tell you how many times I went to sleep or made a drive and I listened to that album. I know every word of every song. Um, you know, when you when you get sad, you put it on. When you were happy, you put it on. I, I mean, it's 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 it, it it has a range of emotions on it. And what's what's been awesome in my adult life is I've I don't want to say like I've gotten to know Adam Duritz, but like I can email Adam, he emails me back. You know, like that's that's bananas to me. Um, I have gotten to know him on some level. Uh, I've been to multiple shows over the past few years where, you know, either I. You know, I was backstage with him before the show, backstage with him after the show, like just me and Adam Durwitz sitting in a room having a conversation about basketball. And the idea that this guy was probably my favorite songwriter when I was a, you know, who was releasing music then, my favorite songwriter when I was in high school and college. And now in my, you know, in, in my adult life, like if I got off this podcast and said, Hey, Adam, just want to check in, see how you're doing, send him a note or a text or what, like he would respond and be like, Hey, what you, how do you think Cal's going to be this year? Like that, that is, that blows my mind. Um, and so when, when I, I can't believe I'm sitting here talking about when Adam Duritz died, but like, that's one that will like get me both because he was a huge, huge uh, artist from my, from my teenage years and college years. Um, but also because like I, I do kind of know him a little bit. And so uh, those like those three came to mind. McCartney. And I know this. I know this is a random list. McCartney, Willie Nelson and, and maybe Adam Duritz. All right. So here are some that aren't on my list, but we've still got. Thankfully, we've got so many of these people still around. Uh, but um, whenever their time is up, uh, will be major headline. I mean, you, you got the two living Beatles. You got McCartney and Ringo. Right. You got the two living members of the Who, Daltrey and Townsend. Uh, you've got Bruce, you've got Dylan, um, the two most famous piano rockers of the past uh, century, Billy Joel and Elton John. Right. Uh, Paul Simon's a big one. I think David Byrne from Talking Heads is a big one. A couple other big ones would actually make my top five. Uh, Brian Wilson of the Beatle of the Beach Boys. Um, love the Beach Boys uh, and his influence directly on the Beatles and then pop culture in general. Um, I'm definitely not ready for that. Uh, other personal ones, Eddie Vedder, uh, Pearl Jam. Uh, yeah. 
I like I just this is also like I, I do not want to live in a world in which these people are not still making music and are on the planet. Uh, McCartney's on my list. Uh, Dave Matthews is definitely on my list. Uh, was without a doubt his music was what made me want to pick up a guitar and learn to play. Um, and that his band is actually up for induction to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's going to be I think that list gets released later this week. I don't know if they'll make it in first year, but they'll definitely uh, get in. Um, and then the other one uh, is Stevie Wonder. Now that one is the big one for me. I think him and him and Dave, who coincidentally just played at the Benefit for Charlottesville, um, first time they'd ever collaborated uh, nine days ago. Uh, Stevie Wonder uh, is just a revelation of a human being. Um, even what he did outside of music. Um, thankfully, we still have all these legends, and there's still so many. Uh, but it, but it's hard, and I, I lost the thread real quick here. Like Stevie Wonder, what makes him so good, in a lot of ways, is his collaborative efforts. Efforts, and that's I think that's true of so many artists, McCartney in general, and then Petty as well. I had mentioned the Foo Fighters before because uh, there's a thread connecting them. You know, Dave Grohl played with the Heartbreakers on Saturday Night Live in 1994 and was asked to join the Heartbreakers to be their drummer, to be Tom Petty's drummer. He did not do it. Instead, he created the Foo Fighters and in doing that created this generation's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and being like the greatest, greatest hit band that we've got out there. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a bummer of a day. I encourage everyone to go listen to some Petty because uh, he is just, he, he is a legend. They will be playing his songs like they will be playing Bob Marley songs and Beatles songs and Stevie Wonder songs 200, 300 years from now. Um, he has stuff from the American catalog that defines the seventies into the late eighties and nineties that, that will live forever. And, uh, I'm glad we had this conversation. I do believe by the way, this is now a new podcast record for length. <laughs> so for everyone who has stuck with us from the way beginning to now, we appreciate it. There was plenty to say. And, you know, I guess we'll see what, if, if there's, if there is more later to come this week with this story, yeah, we'll podcast as necessary. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry, MF, and Teagle. And remember, uh, you can subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via iTunes. We talk basketball sometimes. Sometimes we talk about Tom Petty and Adam Dirt. Please go subscribe. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back when we're back. Uh, promise next week, but maybe earlier.